We begin uh, chapter 23 of the book of Matthew today, looking at the first 12 verses. And um, as we'll see, Jesus is now going to speak really directly to the Pharisees. And um, we have a lot that we can learn from what he, he says to them. But, but first, he's going to take a brief moment and, and speak to the crowds and to his disciples. And that's where we're going to be at today. And the next week, we'll, we'll look at the judgment that he pronounces on the Pharisees. So this is Matthew chapter 23, and we're at verses 1 through 12. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat and do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach. But do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. And they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we ask again for your mercy to understand your word. Help us to see that you see into our hearts, you judge us according to our hearts, and yet you promise to forgive and transform our hearts. May we be moved by your grace, may we be humbled by your kindness, and may we choose a life of humility that you may be glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this passage is uh, one of Jesus' most important warnings to us. Um, we are a religious people, and we are tempted by the same temptations that the Pharisees succumb to themselves. And so Jesus warns us that it's possible uh, to believe all the right doctrines. It's possible to live our life with Christian morals and values. It's possible to participate in all the Christian rituals like baptism and communion and church attendance and giving and service and to still not know God. So it's possible to believe the right things and behave in all the right ways and to still be lost. And that's because Christianity is not primarily a set of beliefs, although they are very important. It's not primarily a structure of behaviors, although Christ does call us out of something into a certain kind of life. But Christianity is primarily about Christ. It's about knowing Him. It's about being found in Him, not having a righteousness of our own that comes through obedience to the law but having a righteousness that he gives us and grants to us as a free gift of grace. 
In our passage today, Jesus is going to use the Pharisees and their approach to true religion. Remember, they had the true religion. God had spoken to Moses and to the prophets, and it was all written down for them. They, they had God's word. So Jesus is going to use their example as a warning for us. He wants us to know there is a kind of religion that cannot save you, and this kind of religion can be found in every religion of the world. And it can also be found inside true churches of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so today Jesus is going to teach us about the actions of religion that cannot save. And then the attitudes of religion that cannot save. And finally the antidote to religion that cannot save. So what are the actions of religion that cannot save. This is not an exhaustive list. These are just the actions that we see here in our passage. What we see is that someone practicing a religion that cannot save is going to be somebody who's presumptuous, superficial obedience, and condemnation. So they presume to take a position of power and authority that they either were not given or if they were given it, they use it to lord over other people in a presumptuous way as if somehow they're better than other people. They obey, but their obedience is only superficial, so it's skin deep. It doesn't come from their heart. And then they condemn others for the, their failures rather than offering grace and compassion. Let me show you in the text. Matthew tells us, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach but do not practice. So Jesus has been interacting with the religious leaders now for about a chapter and a half, and now he turns to his disciples and to the crowds, and the crowds would have been those who believed in him, uh, but also probably those who um, were at least open to hearing what he had to say. And he begins by warning his disciples and the crowds about the kind of religion the scribes and the Pharisees were practicing and teaching. And he says, they sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you. And this is an odd thing for Jesus to say, because there is no Moses distinguished chair of theology at the University of Jerusalem. So what is Jesus talking about when he says they sit on Moses's seat? There was a chair in the synagogues in Israel, and the person who taught from Moses's law would sit in that chair as he instructed those who gathered in the synagogues. But it's not like Moses' authority was handed down from one person in every generation down to the scribes and Pharisees here. It's not like the Pope, where you have a new Pope who has all the same authority as the previous Popes. So why did Jesus say this? Well, because the scribes and Pharisees were full of presumption. They put themselves on Moses' seat, as if they had inherited his authority. Second of all, after everything Jesus has said about the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees, why would he tell them all of a sudden here in this passage to do whatever the scribes and Pharisees tell them to do? 
Throughout the entire book of Matthew, he's accused them of not having read or not even knowing the law. Back in chapter 15, he says this to them. He says, they're teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. In chapter 16, he tells his disciples to beware of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The very next verse in our passage, he's going to tell them that they're teaching as heavy burdens. Sorry, their teaching is heavy burdens that are hard to bear. So why would Jesus all of a sudden say that the crowds and the disciples should follow their teaching? It could be that there were times when they were simply teaching from the law of Moses, and that when they do that, they ought to obey what the scribes and the Pharisees are teaching. That, that could be the case, but given everything that Jesus has said so far about the scribes and Pharisees' teaching, what makes most sense is that Jesus is not being serious here. It's like when your three-year-old climbs into the driver's seat of the car and everybody says, oh, little Susie's driving, buckle up your seatbelts. It's hard to hear the irony in Jesus' voice when we're reading this passage. Well, the Pharisees, well, they put themselves in Moses' seat, so do whatever they tell you. This is because religion that cannot save is presumptuous. The person with this kind of religion presumes they have the same authority and deserve the same respect and admiration as great teachers from the past. They presume everyone is there to learn from them just because they have a title and they imagine they've been called to rule instead of to serve. So Jesus says, don't do what they do. They preach, but they do not practice. They like to talk, but they don't like to obey, which is also a strange thing for Jesus to say, because the Pharisees had the reputation as being the most disciplined law keepers in Israel. How can Jesus say they're not keeping the law when they're the most rigorous, detailed law keepers that anyone has ever known? Their reputation for law keeping is so renowned that we call, you know, law keeping like this now, we call it pharisaical. Well, that's because they may have been keeping the law, but they were keeping it in a superficial way. They kept the most outward, obvious, and minimum requirements of the law. The law commands us not to murder, and if all that means is that we don't violently take the life of another person, then the Pharisees would say, you're doing well. And then we're all doing pretty good. Not only did they reduce the law to the minimum requirement, they stacked the deck with other laws that God had not given them through their oral tradition to make themselves look even better. And Jesus wants to warn the crowds and his disciples not to do what the scribes and Pharisees do. Don't be presumptuous. Don't pretend the law is a superficial thing. Don't add commands to Scripture. Later in this chapter, Jesus is going to say that religion is like straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. So if you imagine the requirements of the law is this massive iceberg, they were keeping the tip of the iceberg that stick out above the water. They were failing to keep the glacier of what God intended underneath, right? They kept the gnat, but they missed the camel, 
They clean the outside of the cup and the plates, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. They are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So the reason Jesus tells us and the disciples and crowds at the time not to do what they do is because God judges the heart. They may look like they're keeping the law. They may be able to fool everyone, but God knows what's really going on. You think you're a good person because you don't murder, Jesus says. Well, think again. If you're even angry with your brother, you're guilty of murder. You think you're a good person because you don't commit adultery. Well, think again. If you even lust in your heart, you're guilty of adultery. You think you're avoiding blasphemy because you swore on your mother's grave. Well, God owns your mother's grave. Everything belongs to him. So they looked good on the outside because they were keeping the law in its most obvious outward application. They looked good on the outside because they had a whole bunch of other laws they made up that they were apparently keeping and demanding that everybody else keep as well. But on the inside, they're full of greed and self-indulgence. And this was a burden that was impossible for other people to bear because it included laws God had never given and there was no forgiveness in it, only condemnation. If becoming like the scribes and the Pharisees was the only way to be accepted by God, if you had to make yourself into as diligent and self-disciplined of a person as the scribes and Pharisees seemed like they were, Who could do that? There was no hope for the person who knows they're a failure. They offered no hope for the person who tries and fails and tries and fails. Or what about the one who thinks they're keeping the whole law, but knows deep down inside that something's missing, that somehow they're not measuring up? There's no hope in what the scribes and Pharisees were piling on. Or what about the person who just falls once? What what do they do with that sinking, crushing feeling that now they've ruined their chances and that God is angry with them forever because they failed one time? See, there's no hope. Perfection is an unbearable burden. That's why Jesus says they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear. They lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. Now, when Jesus says that they're not willing to move them with their finger, Jesus does not mean that they weren't even trying to keep the law themselves. They were. He means they weren't helping other people keep it. They would watch people struggle and fail, and instead of having compassion and trying to help and offering grace, they would stand back, feel superior as they watched them crumble under the weight of their guilt and fear. Let me say this, the burden isn't the law. Just so we're clear, obedience to God's commands is not the burden that's too much to bear. 
I think sometimes we hear Jesus' words here and think that the burden the Pharisees were putting on people is the law. But the Old Testament is clear. God's law is a delight. Listen to King David. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. A few verses later, he says, My soul is consumed with longing for your rules all the time. No, God's law is wonderful. We should long for his rules. As new creations in Christ with new hearts, our desire is to obey his commands and to please him. But the law becomes a burden when we put it between someone and God and we tell them they must keep it in order to earn their way to God. And then we add more laws on top of that that God didn't even give. That's when it becomes a burden. Which is why Jesus is so different. He says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, Jesus' burden is light because there's no condemnation, only infinite forgiveness and grace for our failure. Jesus' burden is light because with him there is forgiveness so that you may be feared, which we quoted from, I believe, Psalm 130 earlier today. Jesus' burden is light because in him we have strength to keep his commands and he will give us a heart to delight in them so that we are consumed with longing for his rules. In Jesus, the law is no longer standing between us and God, condemning us before God, but it becomes the path to joy and salvation that our Lord walked before us so that we might follow him. The Pharisees' burdens were hard to bear because they offered no forgiveness, no hope, no grace, just condemnation. Which takes us to our second point, the attitudes of religion that cannot save. So if the actions are presumption, superficial obedience, and condemnation, the attitudes are vanity, arrogance, and the fear of man. Jesus goes on, They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in all the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. So they do all their deeds to be seen by others. They want other people to think, oh, how great and kind and humble and self-disciplined and God-loving they are. And they might have actually done really good things. Visiting the sick, serving at the soup kitchen, helping your neighbor build his fence, offering a prayer at the synagogue, studying and teaching the Bible. All really wonderful things. But if the reason we do them is wrong, then we're sinning. <laughs> Because the reason we do what we do matters. Are we doing these things to please God for his glory and the advancement of his kingdom? Or are we doing them to please ourselves for our own glory and for the advancement of our kingdom? 
Earlier, Jesus said, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So if we do our good deeds so that other people will praise us, if we do them because we fear losing the praise and approval of others, then Jesus warns us God will not reward good deeds like that. It's vanity. It's being afraid of man instead of properly fearing God. They're quite literally afraid of not having the approval of the crowds. They're afraid of not being thought of as holy and diligent and disciplined. Jesus says, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So because they don't fear God and they so desperately want to be seen as holy and righteous by others, they end up doing ridiculous things. Jesus says their phylacteries were broad, their fringes were long. In the Old Testament, God had told the people to keep his law on their hand and on their forehead. Deuteronomy 6, 8, he says, you shall bind my words as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. So the scribes and the Pharisees, they took this very literally. They would write down the law and they would put it in little pouches and tie it around their wrist or around their head. But instead of putting a small pouch around their wrist or forehead or only wearing it while they were praying, they would put ridiculous boxes to show off to everyone how important it is for them to always be thinking about God's law. The Jews would wear fringes on the bottom of their robes at this time. The scribes and Pharisees would make theirs long and showy as a way of showing off their wealth because a wealth was a sign of their holiness and God's approval of them. Kind of like the prosperity preachers now who drive Bentleys and wear designer shoes. And then instead of going to dinner parties to be with others, to know them and to bless them and to love them and to enjoy them, they would go to be praised and honored by them. Because God cares about the heart. He doesn't just care about what we do. He cares about why we're doing it. If we're doing it out of pride and for the praise of other people, that is not the kind of religion that saves We can love supporting charities or nonprofits, or we can love being the one who's able to buy the auction item. We can love sharing about our blessings out of humility and gratitude for the grace of God, or we can love sharing them to lift ourselves up and to put others down. Or we can be ashamed of our life. We can be just as vain and arrogant and afraid of what other people think in our failure as we are in our successes. So here's what Jesus is telling us. This is a really big deal. If this is what's going on inside our hearts, even if on the outside we look like we have it all together, this is spiritual poison and it can kill us just like it's killing or killed the scribes and Pharisees here. And Jesus is not necessarily trying to convince the Pharisees about this, right? They might already be too far gone. And the rest of this chapter, he's going to go on to to judge them 
for this. That's why he's warning the crowds and his disciples and us, don't let the seeds of this grow in your heart. Don't think that just because you're not committing actual murder that somehow you have this whole religion thing figured out and that you're better than anyone. In fact, thinking we have the right beliefs and the right behaviors, apart from any union with Christ, might be the very thing that damns us to hell. Now Jesus is going to give us the antidote to religion that cannot save. So Jesus' antidote is very simple. It's a simple way to test the reality of our hearts. Jesus is about to tell us what we must do to make sure we're not practicing the kind of religion that cannot save. And the reason Jesus is giving us something to do is because if we're practicing that kind of religion, we won't be able to bear the thing that he calls the disciples to do here. And the first thing he tells us to do is to make sure we act like and think of ourselves as spiritual equals. Here's what he says. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher. And you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor. So Jesus is saying, we're not to be called rabbis, which means teacher, because we have one teacher, and that teacher is Christ, and we're all brothers. Don't call anyone father, because we have one father who's in heaven. And Jesus is not doing away with earthly roles or titles here. Paul will later in the New Testament affirm that there are apostles and pastors and elders and even teachers and preachers. Jesus is also not denying the fact that we have different abilities and training and capacities. Some people are more intelligent, more gifted, more learned than other people, and that's a good thing. Jesus' point here is this. Can we bear the fact that we're not better than anyone else? that we're not more important than anyone else? Can we bear the fact that our voice and our opinion may not carry any more weight than someone else? Can we bear the fact that each of us has direct access to Jesus through his word by the power of his Holy Spirit and we don't need a guru who we follow every word that person says. That is possible for an older woman with an eighth grade education to know more about faith and life than a seminary graduate, and probably she does, it's not even just possible, because she knows God more deeply and has read and memorized her Bible for a lifetime. Yet if that seminary graduate becomes her pastor, she will respect him and submit to him as her pastor because she knows that's a God-given role and she's no better than him. And if he's a good pastor, he will love her and serve her. And as he does, he'll be able to recognize that she's a godly woman and that he has so much that he can learn from her because he knows that he's no better than her. 
As the Apostle Paul reminds us, what do you have that you did not receive? Everything in this life is a gift. It's vanity, arrogance, and the fear of man that makes us feel like we need the respect that comes with the title. It's vanity and arrogance and fear of man that motivates one person to force someone else to submit to them. And if we presume to sit on Moses' seat in our church or in our home or at work, if we act like everyone should do whatever we say because we are the superior one, that is doing all the right things. Meanwhile, we're condemning others because they don't measure up to us. If that's where our heart is, the medicine Jesus offers is to remember that we're all brothers and there is one teacher and one father and we don't need a title. Why? Because the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. A wise man once told me that we only have two options in life. We can either humble ourselves or be humiliated. That's it. If we choose not to humble ourselves, we will be humiliated. If we exalt ourselves, God will humble us. But if we humble ourselves, God will exalt us. And Jesus is helping all of us diagnose the state of our hearts here. Do we consider ourselves a servant of all? Are we willing to love others, starting with our church and our family, and be a servant to all? Fathers, are you willing to be present and faithful in your home? Serving your wife and your children as the spiritual head of your home. And you know where that begins? It begins on your knees in prayer and repentance. The best way to begin serving and leading our families is for them to see us following Christ and putting to death our own sin. And mothers, are you willing to serve your husband and your children day in and day out with joy and contentment, even in the face of the same frustrations, the same rebellion, the same monotonous tasks every single day. Older women, are you willing to serve the younger women of this church and teach them how to be mothers and love their husbands and children as Titus 2 calls you to do? Older men, are you willing to serve the younger men of this church and provide godly examples of faithfulness and joy in the Lord even when everything in you wants to rest and enjoy the life you've built for yourself. And are we all willing to humble ourselves and serve this community by sharing the good news of salvation in Christ alone with our neighbor, our coworkers, our family, and our friends? And are we willing to accept whatever title and role in this life that God gives us, knowing that it makes us no better or no worse than anyone else? And that it is a privilege to serve our King in whatever He calls us to serve Him in. Because the antidote to religion that cannot save is radical humility. The kind of humility that really believes I am who God says I am. That as Christians we are called to a life of humility and service to our family and our church and a lost and dying world, and that my life is really not my own, 
that I belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus is the, is the example of perfect humility. Because right? even though he was God, or is God, <laughs> he never denied the fact that he's God. He exercised his authority as God, as the Son of God, when he walked this earth. He taught, he preached, he warned, and yet he was humble. What made him humble? A lot of times I think we associate humility with like servility and, and, and timid, timidity. But Jesus was not like that, yet he was humble. What made him humble? Here's what made him humble. He was obedient to the Father even unto death. That's humility. Obedience to the Father even unto death. And see, Jesus was humble, right? By acknowledging the truth about himself, which was that he is God's Son, and through him and him alone can salvation be found. And we are humble in the same way by acknowledging that same truth, that Jesus Christ is God's Son, and only through him can salvation be found. That we cannot save ourselves, and that we are so wrecked that we're no different than these Pharisees. Friends, as a spiritual leader and teacher, this is a humbling sermon to study for. And I know I'm not alone. I know I'm not alone in being guilty of presumption, surface-level obedience, condemnation. I'm not alone in pride and vanity and fear of man and worried about what other people think of me. And Jesus wants us to know that this is poison because we can so easily think, hey, I'm doing so well, I'm obeying all these rules, God's happy with me, that we can actually justify secret sins because, you know, this offsets that. And we can go on thinking everything's great. And Jesus wants to take us deep into our hearts and he wants us to see that we desperately need him every moment of every second of every day. That apart from him, there is no hope only condemnation, but in him, in Christ, there is freedom from that. There's forgiveness for that. And that we need him so desperately that we must lean into him every moment for the forgiveness and the grace we need because our hearts are so... I remember the picture I drew earlier of the, of the iceberg, right? It's not the tip of the iceberg that we struggle the most. It's, it's this glacier underneath. It's in the heart. And as Christians, when we learn to depend on him in the heart, I don't, know, I don't know about you, but today when we sung that song after reading the law, I was so moved because everything we said is so true about me. The need for Christ's mercy is so extreme and so wonderful because he grants it. He gives it to us. And really this warning here in this passage is, is not to condemn us when we see those things in our heart, 
but to drive us to Christ. And then if you're like me, we'll probably be battling those heart issues the rest of our life, but we do so in dependence on Christ. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we confess that we so easily become pharisaical. We so easily become those who trust in our own works, who trust in our own righteousness, who love to be seen by others, who love to be thought of as holy and righteous and good. And yet, if we're honest, Father, the glacier underneath our heart exposes the reality of our sin and how desperately we need you, God. Please help us to embrace the forgiveness you grant. Help us to love your law that we might delight in it, that we might long for your rules, that we might long for your strength and your power to live in them from the heart, that you may be glorified, that others may be brought to salvation, and that our hearts might be trained in this life to enjoy you even more in the next. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.